You guys, I'm really excited to tell you about a new online course that I'm offering. It's called Pleasure, Peace, and Power. And it's for anybody who identifies as a woman or anyone who cares about a partner who identifies as a woman. It's a four-week course where I give you data and evidence-informed tips and insights and strategies to find the sexual satisfaction and serenity and self-confidence that's your right. So if you're struggling to find excitement in a long-term relationship, if you're feeling anxious about sex and commitment, if you're wondering how to tap into your sensual superpowers, or you just want to feel better about yourself, I really do think that my online course, Pleasure, Peace, and Power, can help you find all three. So if you're interested, DM me on Instagram at Wednesday Martin PhD to receive information about how to sign up. And I'll see you there. The time has come, you guys. Applications are now open for my four-month Together in Love Relationship Mentorship Program. I can't explain how excited I am about this because I've really poured all of my heart and soul into this program. And I know and truly believe that this will change the trajectory of so many lives. And I can't wait for it. So make sure you go apply. Click the Instagram link in my bio at Witten Love, and you can go apply there. Fill out the application. I will then review your application and set up a discovery call with you to make sure we're the right fit for each other. Love you guys so much. Can't wait to talk to you soon. Check out the Together in Love Relationship Mentorship with me. Hey, True Sex and Wild Love listeners. I don't know about you, but I'm very, very fussy about what I put on my face, what I put on my vulva, and what I put in my vagina. And that is why I was so excited when I learned about a company called Living Libations. What is it? It's a luxurious Canadian line of pure source, raw, organic, and botanical beauty care, intimacy lubricants, raw chocolate, oh my God, so delicious, and holistic oral care products that you can use after you eat the chocolate. Oh my gosh, I love this stuff. First of all, it was created by Nadine Artemis, who calls herself a beauty philosopher, which I love. She's the author of Renegade Beauty and Holistic Dental Care. And she has an incredible philosophy. They use essential oils and their products are highly concentrated. They preserve purity, space, and resources by offering full potency products without any fillers, no diluters, no artificial colors, and no petrochemicals because ick. I don't want that stuff on my face or in my vajay for sure. I love so many of the products uh, that I'm using of theirs. My favorite might be this rose cream, which you can put on your lips. You can put on your cheeks. I kind of spread some on my arms sometimes if I want a little rosy glow. It smells delicious and it feels delicious on your skin, but I am obsessed, completely obsessed with their product called Languid Love Butter. Only living libations could make this. This is a lube that smells and tastes so good and is made with ingredients, wait for it, that you can eat, okay? Because I'm not putting anything on my vulva or on my vagina that I wouldn't put in my mouth, 
okay? Just trust me. You're going to just love these products. Look, synthetic lubes are often just kind of momentary moisturizers or like pedal plumpers. You know, they're only offering you a very temporary lubrication. And often uh, those ingredients of kind of drugstore lubes actually uh, dehydrate your vulva and your vagina. And we don't want that. On the other hand, Living Libations has this organic petal passion serum, they call it. And that sort of lubricates your spaces and soothes you using ingredients that you wouldn't be scared to put in your mouth. And they're ingredients that you can pronounce. There's something really great about that. I'm obsessed and I think you will be too. And here's some really great news about Living Libations and their incredible product line. Just go to livinglibations.com forward slash TSWL and use the code TSWL and you can get 20% off. Hey, that means that you can buy an extra pot of Languid Love Butter and you can send it to me. Okay, guys, Lindsay and I have been talking a little bit more about some of our favorite things because we want to share our brands and the companies that we truly love. And I found a new one. I really did. I found one that I cannot live without. They sent me a box and I basically hounded them to send me another one. And I feel like my life will never be the same if I, if I don't keep drinking this. It is the Element, L-M-N-T, Element Electrolytes. I use this as soon as I wake up in the morning or anytime I go sweat. You've probably seen me playing pickleball a lot lately or wake surfing. I just put these electrolytes straight into my water and it kicks, it kickstarts the day. It helps me stay hydrated. It just makes me feel better. What we hear is we need to be drinking more water. Yes, most of us all need to drink more water. But for proper hydration, we need to drink water and electrolytes. And a lot of the times the electrolytes are just forgotten because we're so focused on drinking the water. Let me tell you why we need electrolytes. It helps nerve impulses fire, regulate fluid balance, help you produce energy. It strengthens bone. And you know what, you guys? Increase endurance, performance, and recovery. We can all use that right now. Plus, if you're like me and you kind of um, uh, try different diets, uh, whether you're fasting or low-carb or keto, these electrolytes specifically are key for relieving hunger, cramps, headaches, tiredness, and dizziness. Thank God. Guess what? No sugar, no artificial ingredients no fake coloring, all that yucky stuff. You don't need that. This is why one of the reasons I'm obsessed with this brand. Rob Wolf was the co-founder of it. He was a former research biochemist, two times New York Times bestselling author, and a Navy SEAL. Talk about a resume. So NBA players, tech leaders, um, we have NFL players, Olympians, all everyone is using Element electrolytes, and it just kind of helps you out if you're in a hot environment, you're getting a good workout in, you just want to feel better. Single serve packets, grab and go. You get 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Why is this important? Because most of us are deficient in sodium, potassium, and magnesium, and it's really hard to get the latter two, the um, potassium and the magnesium, through your diet. So this this makes it super easy. You don't even have to think about it. Throw it in your purse, your gym bag, boom, like that. And try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a salty friend of yours. You'll get your money back. No questions asked. Free shipping on all orders. You guys, I cannot stress enough how amazing this is. 
all of my friends are now drinking it along with me. And it's, it's something that I have to keep hidden from them because they're so obsessed with it. And I know Wednesday does the same. Her son went through the entire box immediately before we could even do any, any post or anything for them. So you know it's good. I promise, promise, promise you. So check them out, L-M-N-T, that's Element, drinklmnt.com slash T-S-W-L. That's drinklmnt.com slash T-S-W-L. Oh my goddess. On this episode of True Sex and Wild Love, we speak with Marisa Acachella, the New Yorker cartoonist, graphic novelist, and author of The Big Shebang, The History of the Universe According to God the Mother. Boy, do we ever get into the history, or shall I say the history, of goddesses and big goddess energy from Paleolithic fertility figures to Kali to, hey, how about Kamala Harris now being one of the most powerful people in the world? Have a listen. We think you'll love it, and you'll fall in love with Marisa and her new book, The Big Shebang. Okay, Wednesday, I have a question for you. Hey, Whitney. Fire away. You can ask me anything. You know that. I know. I know. So this is a little bit different than the other questions I've asked you, but I feel like it's a really good Okay. One. Go for it. What is your, or who is your favorite goddess? Oh my goddess. That is such a good <laughs> question. Okay. I'm going to tell you, I actually have a favorite goddess. Okay. It's Oshan. Oshan is the Yoruba mother goddess. She's like the goddess of fertility and sexuality. And people might be familiar with her because Beyonce channeled her in her Grammy performance when she was had that like amazing headgear and was um, had that outfit that revealed her pregnant stomach. Remember that amazing mm-hmm. Grammy performance? She One of the goddesses that she channeled was Oshan. And then Oshan kind of gave birth to other goddesses. She, you know, she was like an African Yoruba goddess. And then she gave birth to other goddesses um, in the new world. Oh, well, guess who's here to tell us all about goddesses, Whitney? Yes. Tell me more. Well, she's a New Yorker cartoonist. She's a New Yorker. She is a brilliant graphic novelist. She wrote Cancer Vixen. She wrote Antenna. She's one of the most creative, quirky, brilliant thinkers. I know her name is Marisa Acachella. Welcome to the show. She just wrote a new book called The Big Shebang about goddesses. And she's here to talk to us. Welcome to the show, Marisa. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about all things goddesses and God the mother. Oh my goddess. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're in the right place for that. We are so excited. Okay, this book, I want to say a few things about The Big Shebang before we get started, because Whitney and I are lucky enough that we got advanced copies because, hey, that's one of the perks of having a podcast. Exactly. The Big (laughs) Shebang, the first thing to know about it, I think, is that it is a graphic novel that is off the hook beautiful. Oh, thank you. I mean, Marisa, you are such... um, you are such a master of the form of the graphic novel. So for people who are into graphic novels, this one goes beyond. Um, But Marisa, tell us what the title, The Big Shebang, means, because Whitney and I thought maybe it meant orgasm. What It means, means, I mean, like, (laughs) honestly, it means like all of that. It means, well, first of all, 
the big shebang is the whole shebang. I mean, it's like all about the divine feminine and how we've been marginalized, minimized, maligned, sidelined, slut-shamed, unnamed, and in God the Mother's case, completely edited out of everything. Thank you, Council of Nicaea. But even beyond that, and we can get more into that a little bit later, but the big shebang really is like the whole like creation of the universe. And like, you know what? Like, excuse me, do you really think a male God gave birth to all this? So yeah, it is a an orgasm because like when God the mother first had sex, you bet your ass she had an orgasm, right? <laughs> Hell yeah, she did. A great <laughs> yeah, exactly. And guess who the first virgin birth was? God himself. So there you go. Oh my God, this is my kind of Bible study, you guys. <laughs> I know, exactly. You mean the Bible? Wait, you mean the Bible, the book written by a bunch of men about a bunch of men? Well, that's what like, I call it, because that's what it really is. Let's call it as we see it, girls, right? Yeah. The subtitle mm-hmm. of the big shebang, everybody, is The Herstory of the Universe According to God the Mother as Told to Marisa Akicella. So you're basically rewriting humanity's past, but you're writing it as a history of the universe. Well, yeah, because like, let's face it, you know what? Up until now, a history has been told by men and it's been his story. Well, we're 51% of the population. And you know what? Mm -hmm. I'm talking to she, the people here. Our gender has been hijacked. It's time we take our stories back and tell it ourselves. I agree. And I love, I was going through, you know, because we got the early copy. Thank you very much. But I was going through and it says, you know, I'm also rewriting the book. Everything you've been taught is wrong. Yeah. And it's just so good. It's so true. I mean, the truth is we have not been told our real history, our history. I mean, because women haven't done the, haven't told our stories, the narration, the men have stole the narrative and Really, I mean, even with like the Enuma Elish, the cuneiform inscribed by a bunch of men about a bunch of men, down to Homeric Greece. I mean, even Isis, her story was stolen and she was like the queen bitch, let's face it. Okay, we got to get into this. I'm going to have you walk us through because this graphic novel opens up with a visitation, right? Mm-hmm. You're in your studio, which... You guys, you're just going to love this. You're going to love how Marisa shares pieces of her own life. She shares what it is to be like a glamorous woman in New York City. To me, Marisa is the original, like, sort of uh, sex in the city figure, like this this woman who has great shoes and a great career and is beautiful and smart and strong and living in New York City. So the big shebang starts with you, Marisa, sitting at your drawing board because you're a cartoonist, among other things, although that doesn't even begin to touch on what you do, which includes thought leadership and um, graphic design and intersectional feminism. Okay, but you're sitting at your drawing board at the beginning mm-hmm. of the big shebang and you get a visitation from the Divine Mother and she takes you on an epic feminist journey to yes, rewrite she. history as yep. her story. Yeah, she does. I mean, basically what happened was she basically blasts me into outer space and gives puts me on the cloud floor. So she takes it herself and she does the talking first and she introduces her fellow shivolutionaries. And those are the women who have been scapegoated throughout time or whose stories were misrepresented because they didn't 
take control or they didn't have control of their own story or their own narrative. So basically, God the Mother speaks first and she introduces Venus of Willendorf and Mother Earth and Persephone and Isis and the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene, all these different goddesses and saints. And, you know, some are like not so good. And, but, you know, she like gives everybody the cloud floor basically. And that's, that's basically what happens throughout the whole book. Um, it actually starts with Mother Earth, who is in dire straits. She is really worried about what's going on on the planet right now, right this very minute, because humanity has to make its cru- crucial, critical choice. Which way will we go? Will we ascend or will we descend? And as God, as, mo- as Mother Earth goes, so goes humanity. And Basically, it's a call for help and it's a call for humanity and basically women to rise up and take our rightful place. Women had the power first. We were the first power. We are the first power and it's time for us to rise. I'm so inspired. <laughs> so, so am I. I'm like, okay, let's go. You know let's what go. I about this book, you guys? I have to say, okay, so as a social scientist and somebody with a background in anthropology, I was trained to look at data. I was trained mm-hmm. to look at texts. Um, and so whenever I heard the term divine feminine, I was like, well, that's a little bit woo-woo. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the thing that I love about this, Whitney. Marisa starts with, uh, the Paleo Venus figures, right, which are actual archaeological artifacts and facts and texts for us to interpret. Marisa, can you tell us about the Paleo Venuses, which uh, we know were created from a, at least thirty-five thousand years ago until maybe eleven thousand years ago? Tell us about these Paleo Venuses. Okay, first of all, so the Paleo Venuses basically they are the first icons of that represent any kind of God, male or female. And, oh, I heard that. What's that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you did hear that. that. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um, oddly enough, Wednesday, I was writing this section when Untrue came out. I don't know if you know that. <gasps> the well, Paleo totally Venus spo- I was inspired by you, yeah. Um, we're inspired by each other. We are inspired by each other. So, <laughs> so basically, the Paleo Venus, to me, she's kind of like, you know, um, if I could give her a character, she's kind of like Bella Absug to me in a way. And I love Bella. <laughs> and I knew Bella. She was a great friend. So, like, I could see, like, her saying, yeah, you know, I'm, the, I'm like the oldest goddess. And, you know, she basically says, you know, I am the first and foremost icon of a goddess or god worldwide to you, human. And she gives me the finger, basically. Right. And um, she gives us a history 101 lesson. But what happens is all the other... Paleo Venus has come in and there's some that are even older than she is. And like Venus of whole fell says, you know, Hey, you know, step aside. I'm 15,000 years older than you. And then Venus will, Willendorf says, you know, stone age before beauty, you know, so <laughs> they kind of yeah. like go back and forth and have this little banter, but you know, and it's all in good fun and like giving us a bit of a lesson. And, you know, there's some of the Paleo Venuses that like sort of do the Nicki Minaj boob grab. You know, you're saying they're alive today. And for people who don't know what a paleo Venus is, can you describe it to us, Marisa? Well, they are these icons and they're mostly about six or eight inches. And 
They are the most ancient icons known to man that humanity has had. And they, most of them have like tits and vaginas. So, and, and big tummies, big, and big tummies. I mean, they're fertility goddesses and they are, you know, they had age and fatness equal status. That's like what they were about. And they are so not patriarchal. They are not. Mm-hmm. They are not skinny Barbie dolls with no. a, a crazy waist hip ratio and like perky tits, right? No, you, they are not. They are full bodied and full on babes, bitches. And it's, you know, it's, they just let you have it. I mean, I love, and and they're all about fertility, right? I they're mean, all about fertility, and they're all about like they came from the you know, per- purely matriarchal culture. And they, they were the ones who ruled. So, and they, and they basically own their space. They own their bodies. They owned everything at that point. And they were worshiped. And they were worshiped. I mean, they were the first icons of God on the planet. And what did, female. what did their fertility have to do with their power? Like these big pendulous breasts, these big stomachs, these big powerful thighs. Well, they were basically the symbol of the great mother. The, great the mother goddess. goddess. The mother goddess, the mm. great mother, the mother goddess. And they were, I mean, it's even like the Neanderthals back then. They were tied, they, when they died, when they were buried, they were, their heads were tied like in fetal form. Why? Because they were going back to the great mother. The great mother was it. She was everything. So that's how you know God was a woman even back then. I'm going to listen to that song and just go for it now. <laughs> you know? I think this— So what was— go. I was just wondering what the um, process of writing this book was like for you. Um, basically, I— Worked 24-7. I didn't really leave my apartment very much. I was social distancing. Never saw her. Did not see her for two years. That's true. Wednesday will tell you. Wednesday will tell you. I would be like, can we go to a diner and like have a cup of coffee for 10 minutes? I will come to a diner downstairs for me. I know. Oh, my gosh. Marisa worked so hard. I did. I did. I did not leave my apartment. And I had these goddesses. Like, they were so demanding. I mean, I literally, like, eat, slept, and drank goddesses. I didn't didn't (laughs) date. I didn't do anything. I mean, I was just, like, attached to these and totally committed. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, if it shows. I think the reason for that is that this is such an ambitious retelling of Mm -hmm. how women's power has been usurped and corrupted and stolen. So you start with these paleo, a lot of people don't like to call them Venus figurines because, Mm -hmm. you know, Venus didn't emerge until as a goddess until many, 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 many centuries after uh, these artifacts were being worshipped and the mother goddess was being worshipped. But so you take us from these paleo figurines Mm -hmm. and then you take us all the way through, I mean, you already mentioned you talk about Greek goddesses. Um, you take us all the way up to, say, like Pope John the Eighth, who many people don't know was a woman, and you take us to Joan of Arc, and you 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 basically take us on this journey, uh, this historical journey, tracing how women were disempowered and how we can 
figure that out by seeing how various goddesses were disempowered. Well, I really wanted to, I mean, yeah, I did that, but I really wanted to do it in each goddess, goddesses or shevolutionaries voice. And I wanted to basically feel what they were feeling. And like, for instance, the Virgin Mary, right? She gets this visitation by, by Gabriel, right? And here he is. He says, you know, you're going to, you're going to be giving birth to Jesus basically, right? You are, you're he, in the big annunciation and you know, what is, what's it going to be Mary? Yes or no. And, you know, at that point she was just engaged to Joseph and they weren't married. And in that split second, like what was her thought process? What did she think when she was asked that question? What's it going to be, Mary? Yes or no? And she <laughs> knew she would be Sharmuda shamed, which is like slut shamed in Yiddish. And, and you know, she like, what would Joseph do? Like, would he marry her and then divorce her? She was threatened with divorce. What would happen to her, you know, once once the Pharisees found out that she was pregnant and before she got married? Well, you know what? According to the Bible... In Deuteronomy, if a man marries a girl who is claimed to be a virgin and then finds that she is not, they shall bring the girl to the entrance of her father's house, and there her townsmen shall stone her to death. So you know what? Like that is like what? yeah, that's what happened. So guess what? The Virgin Mary, the Blessed Mother, she was threatened by all that. And you know what? She is fierce. She said yes, and she said, "Yeah, I'm going to do it." Like. I'm going to take that chance. Yeah, I'm going to take that chance. And I'm going to have faith. And I'm going to, like, let fear, like, go out the window. So, I mean, I really wanted to have all these women do the talking and, like, let them tell their stories out of their mouths. I just sort of, like, intuited and imagined and let them, I wanted to be a channel for them. You go from, so we just sort of made this huge leap from the Paleo Venuses to Mm -hmm. Mary Magdalene. Um. Mary, the Virgin Mother, right? Um, but in between, and and then what I love is then you go even further than that, and you take mm-hmm. us through like Shirley Chisholm, Tarana Burke, these right. women in sort of embodying female power. Can you take us through a little bit of the history that you cover in the book? Maybe just your favorite moments between the Paleo Venuses and the Marys, because I know we want to spend some time on the Marys because you were born Catholic and you adore them. (laughs) I do love the Marys. I do love the Marys. But to me, I think the most important story, there are two really important stories, actually three, Uh, but the most crucial and most suppressed story in the history of, or herstory, or whatever you want to call it, most most suppressed story of humanity is the story of Sophia. Now, so- hmm. Sophia was the daughter. Like we all know, God's only son is Jesus. But what about God's only daughter? Mm-hmm. Ever think that God had an only daughter? That is Sophia. Sophia is the daughter of God the Mother and God the Father, and. She was born just like her mother. She had that great creative impulse. Remember, God the mother gave birth to God. God the mother created, gave birth to the universe. And here's Sophia. She and her twin flame brother, Christos, were tasked with creating the Anthropos. That is a divine spark. That is humanity. And Sophia 
lived in the Pleroma, which was heaven with God the Mother and God the Father and all the angels, and wanted to create herself. She had this great creative impulse inside her. She was her mother's daughter. And there is this one rule that God has. It's like one of the universal rules, and that is the law of creation is a law of balance. There has to be a male and female when you create. And Sophia, just her impulse was so strong, and she had this tremendous need to know and create. So she basically took this leap out of the pleroma and into the void, and she was completely joyful, but the more she sank into the void, the darker it got, and the more fearful she got. And because she was so creative, her thoughts literally gave birth to something that was ter- and based totally on fear. And what did she conceive? She conceived the demon or the demigod Yaldabaoth. And that is like one of the, Yaldabaoth is one of the big bads in our history that we don't even know about. And this is all based on, by the way, uh, the Nag Hammadi text, which you know about, you know, we all know about divine intervention. Well, this was divine feminine intervention. Those texts were on earth in 1947. But anyway, so. so Wait, tell us about those texts. And I want to just quickly say for people listening, Uh um, Maurice's illustrations of Sophia are amazing. I mean, Whitney and I get to see them. If only we could show you Mm -hmm. how, how, like how lovingly wrought every goddess in this beautiful book is. Tell us more about the texts where uh, where we learn, where you, you know, where this idea of Sophia, goddess of wisdom, came from, Marisa. Okay, well, basically, the Nag Hammadi texts were unearthed in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, in 1947. And I really think that there are no accidents, especially knowing what I know about the divine feminine and about God, the mother, like she does not like being suppressed and she's pretty, pretty angry about (laughs) it. Let's just say that. I mean, like she says, I have her say in the book, you know, I am God, the mother, and I have been wholly ghosted. So, Oh yeah. It's all that. Yeah. It's all that. Right. So Amen. Yeah. Amen. Or A to the woman, right? A to the woman. A to the woman. So in Nag Hammadi, 1947, um, Muhammad al-Al-Saman and his brothers were digging for a soft soft soil for the crops. And they didn't know why they were digging at this very point in this cave. And he, Muhammad, his shovel hit upon a a big red clay urn, and he was afraid to open it because he thought inside would be a djinn, like a demon, <laughs> right? Like a genie, but a djinn. And and he basically did because he, I, in my version, he heard a voice saying, you know, open it. It could be gold, and it was gold. It was like the greatest gold humanity ever heard, and that were the codices from Nag Hammadi. And they were 52 texts that were older than the New Testament. And they were the lost, secret, sacred Gnostic books. And in those books were, was the story of Sophia, uh, the, some of the story, the great gospel of Philip, Philip. And we've been uncoding and reading them ever since. So, and there's so many, there's so much of our history and our history that we don't even know about. For instance, 
the Library of Alexandria was burned down. Who burned it down? I have a bit of an inkling about who did, but some of those texts may be, and I've heard through whistleblowers that they are in the Vatican Library. Go figure, right? Really? <laughs> yeah. So, but um, bump the plot thickens. The plot is always <laughs> thickening. So the beginning of the plot in your telling of mm-hmm. history is that with these paleo figurines, fertility figurines, uh, people were worshiping the power of women to mm-hmm. menstruate, to gestate life, to give birth, right? And so right. these goddesses were really about giving life and taking life and this sort of circular um, embodied history, right? Like right. based on the menstrual cycle, based on the cycles of birth and death. And then you're saying that by the time we get to Sophia, people are reworking these ideas, but we still have these uh, gods who are women or goddesses. Well, we had got, you know, we had the goddesses who were women and, and paleo, the paleo Venuses and um, the Sophia, Sophia, basically, if we're doing a timeline, and I think that's, that's what you're asking me, right? So Sophia was, I mean, she was God, the mother's daughter. So she predates everything. She basically had a hand in Adam and Eve because she created the Anthropos and it was the Anthropos in the embodiment of Eve that came down and basically gave Adam life. Adam was just a lump of clay, basically. Um, Yaldabaoth, the demon, tried to infuse life into him, but, but Yaldabaoth had no soul. So Sophia called up to her mother, God the mother, and said, send down the divine spark. And there comes Eve and Eve is enlightened. And Eve was not only like the wife of Adam, but she was also his physician and she was also the mother of humanity. And Eve is entirely different than what we perceive her to be. We thought she was like the scapegoat of humanity, but she wasn't. She was a, a evolutionary. Eve had such tremendous power. Eve would, would do things like she would, she sent Yaldabaoth to hell. I mean, she was a, a force to be reckoned with. She and stood we up think to she him. just ate the apple. What's that? And we think she just ate the apple. You think she just ate the apple? And guess what? You want to know who the snake is? Snake, the snake is Eve. Eve's the snake. Snake is Eve. The snake is Eve because this is <laughs> yeah. The snake is Eve. Well, I like how you're you're this idea that you're working with that we have been reworking the mother goddess Mm -hmm. repeatedly gets repeated from Sophia to Eve, right? Sophia means wisdom. Right. Sophia does mean wisdom. Exactly. And and in the Western telling of the mythology of Eve, right? They're Mm -hmm. banished because she wants wisdom. She wants, Mm -hmm. she wants to eat that apple. Um, Can you say more about that? Keep going. Absolutely. Because what happened was, so Eve and Adam are basically stuck in Eden. And Eden is basically Eden prison. It's kind of like everything (laughs) in this world that we live in, from my perspective and the perspective of the Natacamity text and everything I've read and all the research I've done, is we live in an inverted world. So white is black, black is white, Good good is mistaken for bad, Bad hides behind good. We live in an upside down world of inversions. So 
here's Eve, right? She is enlightened. She is the physician of Adam. She is the mother. She is his wife. So Eve was such a huge threat to Yaldabaoth and his um, archon minions, a demigod, Yaldabaoth. He basically concocted this master plan that what I call the divide and conquer humanity master plan, which was first he put Adam to sleep and then he compelled Adam to believe the woman serves him and came out of his rib. That was not true, right? We already know. The women served him and came out of his rib? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that's a joke. Yeah, it was, and he's like, not buying Making it. sure I got that right. Yeah, like, that is like, <laughs> that is not what happened. Eve gave Adam life, okay? So they go after Eve with a vengeance, and Eve blinds them with her eyes. Like, she has, she, Eve was supernatural, and she was enlightened. Then when they came after her, after they regained their sight, she left her physical body right, with Sleeping Handsome instead of Sleeping Beauty, Sleeping Handsome, Adam, because <laughs> he fell asleep, right? And she hid inside a tree, which wasn't just any tree. She hid inside of the tree of knowledge. So there her spirit is in the tree of knowledge, right? But her body was left by Adam and the archons attacked Eve in every which way imaginable, okay? Ooh. So... What happened was Eve's spirit was in the tree, the apple was in the tree, and the snake was also in the tree, and all of them were Eve. Okay, I have a question. Right. I just love this. I'm eating it up. Uh-huh. Like Eve, mm-hmm. like Eve, Me too. Like Eve supposedly ate the apple. Right. Right. Um, okay. I have a question. Marisa, can you tell us, in your book, you explain a little bit how Eve was a reworking of two other forgotten goddesses, one mm-hmm. Asherah mm-hmm. and the other Persephone. Right. Can, okay. you, can you explain to our listeners who Asherah and Persephone were and how they continued to get reworked from, okay. the, fi- from the figurines and how they can, got worked into Eve and the okay. relevance today? I know right. that's a big question. No, I, no, I love that. I lo- oh my gosh. <laughs> I love these questions. I love talking about the goddesses. I mean, this is kind of like I could do this all day. So like, so yeah. So um, Asherah, Asherah, Asherah is, uh, she is a tree. She's the personification of a tree, which is another incarnation of Eve. And here she is. She was also just like Eve, queen of heaven and mother of all living things. And she was married to Yahweh. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, right? Mm-hmm. Israel had two gods, Yahweh and his Asherah. And they, they were both worshipped. But what happened was, I mean, I don't know if any woman out there can relate to like a woman getting more attention than a guy. And, um, and he flips out. <laughs> no, definitely, like, not. definitely not. And like, you know, like, you know, temples. We don't know anything about right. that. I know, and I know we don't know anything about like, you know, like, okay, there's Asherah temples are built in her honor. Women bake cakes in her image. Tapestries were made. You know, basically she's honored and worshipped. And nobody can relate to a guy getting jealous at all, right? No, right. Okay, so, so, so that's, <laughs> that's kind of what happened here. And there, and then suddenly, you know, her people and her temples are all slaughtered and her temples are destroyed. The ashram trees, which were built and like on the streets and her honor, like the trees, they're all burnt to the ground. And I didn't even say what really happened to the temples afterwards. 
the men peed on the temples after they were burnt. Oh, I mean, like just to defile them even further. Yeah, like you know, as if that wasn't enough that they burnt her to the ground. They had to pee on her afterwards. Right? And they had they had to do that because she was so powerful, right? Like right. she she was according to these texts from um, um, Ugarit. Is that right? From Syria, she was right? a mother goddess. She was widely worshipped throughout. She was Syria. the she was the god. She was the one who was worshipped, right? So. So what happens is not only do the children of Israel lose their mother, they who was inverted in an you know an ab, um, she was inverted into an abomination. But then like there's all these like biblical texts that say you know they're going to basically tear down the altars, tear down the ashram, and root your ashram images among you and destroy your cities. I mean. Yahweh, he was like this, he was a vengeful God. I mean, jealousy could, I mean, hell hath no fury, right? So when we like ha- a man, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Marisa. I was just saying that, you know, a man scorned, hell hath no fury. <laughs> no fury like a guy whose feelings have I know, been really. scorned, like I mean, whose like, wings have been clipped. Exactly. Talk about <laughs> version, right? I have a question. Sure. So as we move as Western civilization moves toward this idea of the one God, right? For example, Yahweh, right? Um, right? Mm-hmm. Then you're saying all these goddesses, all these fertility goddesses, these multiple goddesses who combine mm-hmm. sexuality and reproduction mm-hmm. um, and mother power, they mm-hmm. all have to be obliterated. Right. By the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Got it. I, yeah. I interrupted you before you talked about Persephone. Oh, well, Persephone, like to me, that was like, there's two, there's like two big triangles in the book, right? The yeah. first triangle is the triangle of Persephone, Hades, and her mother, right? Who I call Smother. Okay. <laughs> Smother. Like, like my mother. I feel like a lot of, a lot of people can relate to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically... We find out that the reason that Persephone was smothered is because, um, well, I'm not going to give this away just yet. What happened basically was uh, Demeter was really, really overprotective of Persephone. And she did not, she even dressed her in like baby doll togas, right? She paid (laughs) like the nymphs to babysit Persephone. She didn't want anything to happen to her. And then... Hades comes in and scoops her up and treats her like a queen. So she decides, hey, this isn't so bad. I'm going to like be queen of, you know, Hades, right? So through my point of view and my perspective, when I thought about this whole thing and I thought about what happened to Persephone and I looked at how she was portrayed in history, I mean, there is like all these statues and masterpieces. All right. What makes a masterpiece? A woman getting raped? Really? Really? I mean, this is what really, this is what, this is what our history is. This is what's in the museums. This is the media before the media. There's like the rape of Persepina by Bernini, the sculpture, the abduction of Persepine, which is another word for Persephone, by Rembrandt. There's a Hans van Aken. There's a Rubens. There's a Detroit. There's a Alessandro Lori. All these masterpieces, so-called masterpieces of like the rape of Persephone. And that's like, again, a bunch of male artistes funded by a bunch of wealthy men. This is the media before the media. 
So that's what happened to Persephone. But then as we go on and hear her story, we find out that the reason why Demeter was so protective of Persephone is because Zeus was such a cad and like the (laughs) worst, right? I mean, these male gods were such devious, rapacious thugs, right? He turned himself into, um, she, he turned himself into a dragon and sinuated into Persephone's cave where she was hiding and raped her, okay? And that's his niece. And then we find out how Zeus raped all these other female goddesses. And we find out that Harvey Weinstein, Zeus was the Harvey Weinstein of ancient Greece, basically. Oh, snap. Gosh. (laughs) Just say it, Marisa. You just said it. <laughs> there you go. I love the way, you know, Demeter is Persephone's mom and mm-hmm. she's the goddess of the harvest and yes, grains and fertility. And she's a reworking of the the paleo goddesses, right? Yes, it's and, all connected. Exactly. And you show that so beautifully, mm-hmm. like the connection. And But, you know, then you get to this, I love this point you make about um, the sort of gods of Renaissance art. Mm-hmm. How, what is, how do they make their mark? They make their mark by elevating female disempowerment, by by representing repeatedly the rape of Persephone. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? The juxtaposition of elevating rape, right? I mean, it's, yeah, that's exactly what happens. I mean, like a woman is significant when she's raped. Okay, like that's great. Like that's why that's why we need to t- ch- take charge of our own narration, tell our own stories and rewrite our own books and write our own books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's, I, I think through in this entire book, it's it's so inspiring for women to see themselves as these goddesses, right? Mm-hmm. And be able to like bring that energy into who they are. I, I think so. I mean, I think it's time for the divine feminine to rise within all of us. And I feel like it really has been. And I, you know, I really don't want us to stop now. It's time to keep going. It's dangerous, right? It's dangerous if we don't. It's dangerous if we don't, and it, there are risks if we do. There, I, I know there are definite risks if we do, but I think that as the divine feminine rises, and if we do it the right way, and if we create a balance, I think that's really what can save us and the planet. Because as humanity goes, so goes Mother Earth, and vice versa. I have, mm-hmm. I have a question. Go ahead. Okay, so we we made this big leap, you know, mm-hmm. from from the paleo Venuses to Demeter, and then we went forward to the Renaissance. Let's talk about something that you cover in this book right Mm -hmm. before the Renaissance, which is what we have come to describe as witch hunts. Yes. And I I was just thinking about, um, you know, the, the, what's at stake when we talk about what you call Maurice, the divine feminine, um, engaging with the actual, historical and prehistoric fact mm-hmm. that women have been disempowered, that they went from literally divine mm-hmm. to literally a subservient, even in mm-hmm. this country, when you look at rates of meaningful labor force participation, meaningful political participation, the mm-hmm. education gap and the wage gap, mm-hmm. we women have really only 
closed, the education gap. We we literally have been disempowered. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I was thinking about, you know, when Hillary Clinton tried to become president and what's happening now that Kamala Harris, uh, a woman of color, is vice president right. and what's at stake and how great the risks are. And one historical example of the risks of female empowerment is the witch hunts, which you mm-hmm. illustrate beautifully, crazily. Can you talk to us about that stage, uh, the shevolutionaries of the witch hunts and and how this came about? You talk about, you describe the malice maleficorum. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. So basically, um, the malice maleficorum was published in 1946 and it translates to the hammer of the witches. And it was a bestseller You'll love this for over 250 years. I'm so jealous. Yeah, really. (laughs) Like second only to the book written by a bunch of men about a bunch of men, aka the Bible. Okay. Its author, Heinrich Kramer, he was a misogynist. He's like Stephen King, the Stephen King of his day. He told, oh my God, this sounds so good. (laughs) Just like constantly reprinting. I know. Maybe he's like, he's an incarnation (laughs) of like Stephen King. Like those, that that energy just never goes away. It just like keeps coming back until we squelch it once and for all. So anyway, because we, they try to squelch us. It's not going to happen anymore. Just saying girls. Anyway. That's right. right. So yeah, <laughs> so he believed women were basically demons and here on the planet to do like the devil's bidding. And <laughs> he just did not like, you know, any kind of strong woman whatsoever. And for, for that matter, neither did the patriarchy because like women at that point, again, were beginning to rise and they were homeowners and they were independent. And you know what, what happened was Witch hunting became a big business. The wealthier the witch, the better uh, the pastors, bishops, reverends, magistrates, and accusers and torturers all got a cut of the loot. What? Wow. Yeah. So it was like, okay, so you're independent. You own your own home. You've got your own money. You're a witch. Bye. So that's what they were saying. They were just being a witch is being a strong, independent woman. Right. For the most part, yeah. Or like, you know, they would be if or if she was like attractive and single and lived next to a man who was married and he wanted her, uh, he would say that she made his penis disappear. Like that's the kind of stuff that went on. Or that, you know, another one would say that they that the girl, the woman fornicated with Satan and the woman happened to be a a virgin like that's the stuff that went on back then and this there's a go ahead Whitney mm-hmm. I was just gonna make a funny comment about there's a few men that I would enjoy making their penis disappear <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew you'd bring it <laughs> there you go yeah I mean like we can make a list maybe yeah can we put Donald Trump at the top of the list I think sure. there's so many we I can think- put at the top of the list, really. So right? many. Okay, so, so many. this witch hysteria, let's just call it male hysteria because they people – People, mostly men, like you said, Marisa, were presiding mm-hmm. um, over these tribunals. But uh, where, so then they would they would look at the malice maleficorum, which supposedly mm-hmm. told you how to tell if a woman was a witch, right? Right. That was the go to guide for witch hunting. That was, and it's just because the writer Heinrich Kramer was was 
burned by some hot babe. And he was just so angry. Again, hell hath no fury like a man scorns. It's all inversion. And he just wrote this book because he was so mad. Probably homely and never got laid. <laughs> so, yeah. so this witch hysteria period, right. it really took hold in Europe during the mid-1400s, right? And it right. went on and on. I mean, we had the Salem witch trials in the United States toward the end of the 17th century. And these women mm-hmm. were accused and then they were tortured right. and um, a lot of them confessed under torture. You make the point that some men that we would call gay men now were also tortured and confessed under torture and 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 were killed as witches. Yes, because when you think about it, any threat to like the so-called patriarchy, not all men, I'm talking about the patriarchy, you know, they were were hunted down too. Like, God forbid that, God forbid there should be any kind of diversity whatsoever, right? Hey, can I take us on a little tangent? You guys are going to not believe this. Okay, when I was writing... Uh, the button, which is my mm-hmm. Amazon original story about um, a nat- it's a natural history of the clitoris. Mm-hmm. I I discovered that in the Malus Malficorum there is a passage that talks about this thing called the devil's teat, mm-hmm. and I uncovered research that showed that one of the ways that they tortured witches was they would um, uh, tortured women mm-hmm. and got them to confess or determined whether they were a witch or not. You know, they might poke their skin, um, mm-hmm. you know, with a needle to see if they bled. If they bled, they were human. If they didn't bleed, they were a witch. They would throw women tied to chairs into the river. And if it floated, they were innocent. And if it sunk, they were guilty of being witches, all kinds of, all, all kinds of stuff. But one thing they did is they would look at a woman's clitoris and stimulate it. And if it became erect, that was the devil's teat and she was a witch. Wow. So so to your point, Marisa, about how female fertility, female sexuality, um, female sexual and reproductive power got um, reworked into a force for evil. Mm -hmm. Like at this point in history, like the clitoris is literally a force for evil and gets a woman killed. Wow. You know what? It's, that is crazy. I mean, you, you talked about like the hysteria of men and you know, I go <laughs> a little bit, which, you know, never happens. Right. So <laughs> it's like, I go into that brief history of menstrual hysteria yeah, that's what I'm looking oh, at right no, now. It's gorgeous. It's super interesting. Right? I would love to talk more about yeah, that. Yeah, because and, and like- Then Marisa, tell people where they can find it. Isn't it, is it now in the New Yorker? Yes, it was, it was excerpted by the New Yorker. Uh, it's online at newyorker.com. And, and the, here's the thing. Like at first, men had a fearful awe of like Menzies' blood and thought it like coalesced into a baby, Right. And the Sumerians would actually mix Menzies with gold, and that was their powerful elixir, okay? Um, the, it was called supernatural red wine. Ooh. The Norse god Odin stole it. Celtic kings became gods from it. Thor would soak in it. And what? As a, yeah, I Thor mean, like, soak it's in like it. that was his Calgon take me away moment, right? Just There's soak Thor, in menstrual like, blood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
how many women, menstruating women, does it take to create a Calgon bath? I just wonder about that. That's what I was just thinking. During, during, during pen, perimenopause, like one of us. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so much. Exactly. Go on. Go on. So, I mean, according to the Talmud, if a woman, menstruating woman walks between two men, one of them will die. I mean, there are all these different examples, like... Even Pliny the Elder wrote, contact with menstrual blood will make wine sour crops barren, the edge of steel dull, hives of bees die. And today we even have the pink tax, you know, on feminine Mm -hmm. products and basically anything that goes on down there. But basically, again, what made us powerful has been inverted. And now we're shamed. We're shamed for having our periods. It's like we have to pay for tampons. It's like- I'm seeing a pattern here. What's that? I'm seeing a pattern here. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like, you know, what if you're wearing white pants and you like bleed? Okay. Like, oh my God, you're like totally humiliated. But if a guy gets punched in the nose in a fight, it's in any one, it's a badge of honor. So like, okay, like, what do you have to say about that? Ooh. How about this taboo taboo in rural India say if a menstruating woman touches a pickle, it will rot. I kind of think that was so funny, right? <laughs> really crazy one. But you know, it's sort of like exactly like um, your point about, look, if women were powerful, it, the mm-hmm. seat of female power, if it was reproduction and sexuality with the ancient mother goddess fertility mm-hmm. figures, right? then to as you say, that had to be warped into mm-hmm. the worst thing possible, right? right and so right. there you are walking around. The, the image and the advertisement is, oh my God, nothing could be more shameful and disempowering than you having menstrual blood all over your white pants. I'm just, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just imagining a world where women are deliberately wearing white during our periods and just showing the world are bloodied white garments. Oh my and, God. I love that. And they all have to burn down before us. <laughs> free bleeding. I think that's it's a awesome. thing. Think they're already doing oh, it. Whitney, really? you need to tell everybody about free bleeding and tell Marisa. Tell me about it. Free bleeding is just when you're on your period, you don't wear a pad or a tampon and you just let it bleed down your leg. And if you're in white pants, you're in white pants and everyone can see it. It's just called free bleeding. I love that. You're just letting it go. How did who who are free bleeders, Whitney? I'm fascinated. My yeah. little anthropologist antenna just went like bing. Yeah, let's tell me about it. I want to hear it. Tell us all. Like well, I mean, I don't I don't have a whole lot of information on it. I'm not really sure where it came from or how it started. I think it's just the movement of mm-hmm. saying like this is okay. Mm-hmm. Like we menstruate without using the pads and the tampons. We don't have to do that to make other people feel comfortable with mm-hmm. it. And why make other people feel comfortable? What's the point of that? I mean, look at Isis, right? I mean, her name, her very name Isis means the throne and the throne I mean, that's her lap. That's where life comes from, right? That she's, that's her fertility. I mean, that was honored back then in ancient Egypt. You know, mm-hmm. I love this idea of free bleeding women, um, just ta- that they're just tapping into paleolithic fertility goddess energy. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of them know that they're doing it, mm-hmm. um, but, but I love this idea of drawing a line, right, mm-hmm. from from uh, 
paleo fertility goddesses through Oshan, through mm-hmm. Mary Magdalene to mm-hmm. free bleeders. Mm-hmm. I mean, free, yeah, free bleeders. Yeah, that's really um, cool and powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I'm reading a little bit more on the uh, free bleeding and where it came <laughs> from and started, but it's, it does, they're saying that we don't really know when the modern, take on it when I like started. I can tell you um, that when I was in college in the, in the late eighties, um, we, there wasn't a term for it, free bleeding, but there were women who said, I'm not going to wear a tampon and I'm not going to wear a pad and people can just deal with it. <laughs> and it happened, wow. it happened at this historical, um, anti-nuclear movement protest called Greenham Common. Mm -hmm. That's the first place I heard about what's now called free bleeding. And I also heard about free bleeding wit um, from your friend, the sex witch who was on with us. Oh yeah. Mia Magic. I heard about free bleeding from Mia Magic and I've heard people at Burning Man talk about free bleeding. Well, yeah, she was, she was free bleeding at Burning Man when I was there and she would take her blood and put it on her body and paint her face with it and Wow. So I'm looking at, okay, Wikipedia, not that that is like the be all end all, but it says it started (laughs) in the 1970s as a reaction to toxic shock syndrome. Ah, interesting. Well, I mean, what about that toxic shock syndrome anyway? And bacteria growing in tampons. And what about tampon manufacturers basically saying, we have to suck it up so hard inside of you. It's so bad if any of it gets out into the world. We're going to yeah. over-absorb mm-hmm. and then tell you that you can wear these things forever. And then you'll get this. Uh, the, and then this horrible thing could happen to you. I know. And they don't care just as long as they make money off of us, right? <gasps> I, Check this out. Around 20 billion pads and tampons are thought to end up in North American landfills every year. Wow. What? Really? You guys, I'm all for free bleeding now. I mean, I know it's easy for me to say because I don't bleed anymore, but I'm down with it. I'm down with it too. I mean, I don't bleed anymore either, but if I did bleed, I'd be like, I'd be a total free bleeder. I'm about to start my period as of like today or tomorrow. So. Um, Whitney. let's see what I free bleed. I just, I love the idea of it, but I just don't think I'm a free bleeder. <laughs> it might be messy, right? <laughs> it might be a little messy. I currently have white sweatpants on too. And I, not that necessarily I would be ruining them, but. You know, I just thought of something when you said that, Whitney, about, you know, how impractical it is and how about menstrual blood used to be like the proof of female power and goddessness. And then it got inverted into a taboo. And I was thinking about this friend of mine, Reagan, telling me the story, Whitney, of how Mm -hmm. she was in the grocery store. She went to Berkeley. It was probably the late 80s. And she was wearing white sweatpants and a white sweatshirt. And (laughs) she is really pretty and People have always made much of her wherever she went, but she's walking through the grocery store and she's thinking, wow, people are making an even bigger deal of me than they (laughs) usually do. Is it my hair? Is it my awesome body? Is it my self-confidence? And then a woman came over to her and whispered, you've got your period and it's everywhere. And she looked down and her white sweatpants were like completely soaked and she was soaked down from ankles. And people were like, looking on in horror and fascination. But I like to think that that horror and fascination was an inversion of worship. 
I would like to think yeah. that too. I mean, and that's how it should be, right? Yeah. I say we just go with I it. I say we go with it. Like, did, Yeah. Did you guys ever take out a really bloody tampon and hold it in front of a guy that you're in a relationship with? <laughs> and I don't think so. Why? Have you? I'm sure. I feel like... <laughs> I feel like there's a story here, Wednesday. I, actually, I, I didn't, but Wednesday, did you do it? I mean, it sounds like you did. <laughs> it's something my girlfriends and I used to do. That's hilarious. I have, over the course of my life, been lucky enough to date several scientists. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I was always like fascinated by my menstrual blood. And I had really super heavy periods sometimes mm-hmm. and would get like big, you know, like clots and, um, or just super, super saturated tampons, just dripping with menstrual blood. And I found it fascinating and I would take it out and inspect it and, you know, describe it to my gynecologist and whatever. It was fascinating to me. And, And my, every one of my scientist boyfriends, I I would try to indoctrinate into being fascinated by my period blood. And they would, I was like, this is interesting. Like this guy's a scientist. He's, you know, trained to be interested in um, facts and realities about biology, about reproduction. But he runs screaming when I show him my bloody tampon. (laughs) I think that's hilarious. Oh my gosh. There's no real punchline. It's just that I have been noting for ever since I menstruated that men are horrified by menstrual blood. And I think, I think that Marisa, you finally helped me understand why. I have to tell you though, I mean, I've actually broken up when I was like way back when having a period. I've broken up with men who are like, you're on your period. I'm not going to like have sex with you. I'm like, I'm on my period. That's why you're getting out of here and I'm breaking up with you. So 100% break up with that. I did. I totally broke up with him. Another (laughs) one quoted Leviticus. I'm like, you're, you know what? You're out the door too. I mean, there is, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I feel like, look, if someone is really freaked out for my period, or they're not going to have sex with me on my period, we're done. Yeah. Like, let's just not even play this game. This is not going to yeah. work out well for either one yeah. of us. Like, you're, you're not going to have sex with me ever again at all. Bye. Right. Yeah. God, what's your, exactly. what's your problem? It's called the shower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, just have sex in the shower. What's your gap, guys? But we know what, yeah. but now because of Marisa, we know what their gap is. Yeah, we do. That's right. All that inverted, sure all that power inverted it's, into it's taboo. Every, it's all about the inversion of power. We had the power first. We were the first power. And it's and they've been trying to take it away from us and invert it ever since. You know, I was just thinking about um, there's a stand-up comedian. I can't remember her name. She would do her stand-up comedy really heavily pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and she, one of the things that she talked about was um, how, I think, her, I believe her name is Ali Wong. Okay. Ali Wong. Remember? Her, yeah. And she did that great um, stand-up show, like maybe eight months pregnant in a super tight leopard dress. Wow. Yeah. pulled her dress up and and pretended that a man was performing oral sex on her. And one of her, one of the things that she said in her stand-up set was um, that the guy, one of the guys she loved the most in her life was a man who they were seeing each other and they had had sex a few times and she had her period. And she told him 
well, I don't know if you want to have sex with me because um, I'm having my period. And he said, pull out that tampon and let's go. Wow. Oh my God. I'd marry, I'd marry him. I'm like, okay. Well, you know what? Like if he went down on her, he would turn like, like a Celtic King into a God. Like, you know what? These men have been missing out all along. Well, I think Ali Wong's point, like, like Whitney's, like Whitney said, I would love that man so much. And she, Ali Wong says like, that was the nicest thing a guy has ever said to me mm-hmm. because he was just like honoring not only is there nothing taboo and disgusting about mm-hmm. menstrual blood, it's like powerful and sexy. Oh, more of that, okay? Yeah, I agree. We need more guys like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. Amy Schumer has a really uh, funny stand-up on periods and menstrual cups and all that stuff, too, if you haven't seen it. Oh, we got to give the link to both of those, right, in our show yeah. notes. Yeah. These are going to be the yeah, weirdest absolutely. show notes ever, Whitney. Just, just the, <laughs> or the most interesting. <laughs> yeah, what? That's what I mean. I mean, weird as a complete compliment. All right, yeah. we have to wrap up because we've kept Marisa for such a long time. But oh Marisa, before I've we go, so much from you guys. So this has been great. I want before we go. I don't know if Whitney has one last question after I do, but I would sure just love to hear you talk about being raised Catholic and how you fell in love with the Marys because the Marys play a big role in this book. Um, I have always loved, first of all, I've always loved the Virgin Mary and I always felt like she was queen of heaven and queen of the universe. And she's always been struggling throughout the history of the Catholic church for power. And I just never understood why. And I always thought she was totally fierce because there's Mary. She's, she's stepping on the serpent, right? Which I mean... You know, I have like conflicting, a conflicting story about the serpent, but I'll take that serpent to mean like, you know, Satan or demon. And there she is like conquering the serpent. And then she's, she's got this most serene face. She's like totally fierce and badass. So I've always loved her because she is so all powerful. And I love Mary Magdalene because she's so misunderstood, but when you really do a deep dive into who she is and what her character is and who she, and the deep down knowledge she has. I mean, she was the first apostle. She was the one, the apostle who knew all, and she was the bride of Christ. And she basically, she, I think Mary Magdalene is, is everything. So I love, I love the Marys. You make a great point that Mary Magdalene, I'm sorry, that the Virgin Mary was a fertility goddess. She was a fertility goddess. I mean, it's really, when you think about it, most of them are fertility goddesses, or a lot of them. I mean, there's some that aren't, like Inanna, who's not certainly not a fertility goddess. But um, And we, like, split them, right? Mary Magdalene was the sexual one, and mm-hmm. the Virgin Mary was the fertile one, but it's just the splitting of the original fertile mother goddess. I think it is a splitting. I mean, I think all Marys equal one Mary and it's all, they're all part of the divine feminine when you think about it. Mm. Yeah. Have you, I'm assuming you did the, the Magdalene manuscript. I've been dying to read this book, but I haven't read I it. I love, I mean, I love that book so much and um, it's one of my references. Yeah. I, I love the, Mar- the Magdalene manuscript. I think it's awesome. Yeah. I love that book. It's brilliant. 
Well, well I'm definitely going to read that. Yeah, we, I mean, I just want to tell everybody who's listening, even though we have to let Marisa go, before she tells us where we can find her on social media, I want everybody to know the big shebang is available for pre-order. Pre-order it because it really helps authors, but pre-order it to make sure you get it. It is so beautiful. Literally, I am ordering 10 copies of it to give to people as holiday gifts. So all my girlfriends who are listening, you're getting a copy of this book, but buy one anyway to support Marisa. Uh Uh I think it'll be a really cool holiday gift in like a coffee table book. It's just so cool. Thank you. Beautiful, right? Yeah. It's that rare book that is beautiful to look at, fun and relatively easy to read, but it blows your mind. Just the richness of the research um, the resources, the knowledge in here. People are going to, it doesn't matter uh, if you're a man, a woman, if you identify as neither, there is so much in this book for you. The big shebang. Okay, Marisa, how do people find you on social media? At uh, Marisa, M-A-R-I-S-A-A-C-O-C-E-L-L-A on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And I just want to say this has been such a great conversation with both of you and so enlightening. I've learned so much from the two of you and it's, it's been really great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. We learned so much from you. This is a lot of fun. Loved having you on. Thanks, Marisa. Come back Thanks, soon. Guys. I would love to. Thanks. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah, leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.